This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 74, part A. to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hello and welcome to the Negotiate X Podcast. I'm your co-host and co-founder, Nolan Martin. And with me is my good friend, co-host, co-founder, Aram Dinesian. Aram, do you want to kick it off for today? I will. Folks, today we're joined by Dr. Claire Fowler, Executive Vice President of Mediate.com. She received her doctorate on designing dispute resolution systems for small businesses from Pepperdine University Graduate School of Education and Organizational Leadership and her Master's of Dispute Resolution from the Strauss Institute for Dispute Resolution at the Pepperdine University School of Law. Dr. Fowler serves as Managing Editor at Mediate.com and as Director of Caseload Manager. She teaches at Pepperdine Dispute Resolution Department and University of Oregon. Claire mediates and trains focusing on workplace disputes. Dr. Fowler's dissertation was a phenomenological study of workplace disputes. Her recent book, Rising Above Office Conflict, A Light-Hearted Guide for the Heavy-Hearted Employee, builds upon her 20 years of experience by bringing practical tools for resolving conflict into the hands of employees in an enjoyable and applied, and applied manner. She lives with her family, her needy dog, and her coffee maker <laughs> on an old Christmas tree farm. Claire, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this. So, Claire... Wonderful bio, amazing background. Tell us a little bit about your journey that brought you into the world of dispute resolution. Sure. So most of the time growing up, it was just me and my mom. And my mom, I had grown up in the very standard 1950s housewife culture where you didn't discuss problems, right? You just kind of swept them gently under the rug. And that was the polite thing to do. And so I didn't really have any kind of an example for how to talk through difficult things. And then in third grade, somebody came and taught us a peer mediation class. And I was hooked. I was like, this is incredible. Like there are tools and we can resolve stuff. We don't, we don't just have to ignore them and pretend like they don't exist. So it was fascinating for me. I was hooked instantly. So yeah, ever since third grade, this is this has been what I do. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, I often tell folks that in third grade, I read a book about West Point, and that's when I knew I wanted to go into the Army. So it's amazing, the magic of third grade. Nolan, what did you read in third grade that has driven you? Nothing that I can remember, so I'm sorry for breaking <laughs> it. Two or three is not bad, though. <laughs> Archie Comics, maybe? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> You'll think of it in the middle of the night. Yeah, he will. (laughs) Perhaps an over simple question, but how do you define mediation and what tools does an effective mediator need to have in their toolbox? Um, So let's start with how do I define mediation? So for me, the stereotypical mediation is when you have a mediator and at least two parties sitting at a round table trying to work through things. And the mediator's job is to create a safe space to help to elicit feedback so that people feel comfortable enough. Um, I kind of picture it, so I have three kids. And at the end of the day, right, they come home from school 
And I say, hey, do you have any homework? And they're like, I don't know. So they pull their backpack off of their back and they just shake it, right? And they dump it down on the on the table and everything comes out, right? The the love notes and the pop tarts and maybe one actual <laughs> textbook and they just dump it all out there. And that is my visual for mediation, right? I want it to be a safe enough space where everybody's like, let me just dump it all out and then we can sort through it, say, this was not healthy for me, let's get rid of that. But this is something that I want to build on and keep in my life. And this is something I didn't know about you that I'm glad that you've shared. Right. That's how I picture it. And I just want people to feel safe enough that they can do that and also empowered enough that they can come up with a solution themselves that works for their situation. That was the first part of your question about what is mediation. Yep. As far as what are the skills that people need? That's that's a tough one. But if we're going to distill it to the very basics, obviously, you have to listen. And I think it's one of those skills that you can't really fake. Right. Like I can kind of force myself to close my mouth, but if I'm bored or if I'm distracted, I'm just not going to listen, right? So it takes a little bit of mental preparedness before you come into the mediation session. I need to write everything that I'm thinking of, any kind of a grocery list. I write it on a list so it's out of my brain. And then as people start talking, it's like you just have to have this innate sense of curiosity. I am so fascinated by the person sitting across the table from me that I really want to hear their story. And I think people resonate with that, somebody who's genuinely curious in what they have to say, as opposed to someone who's just faking it and pretending like they're active listening. So I would say listening, but listening that's coming from a place of curiosity. If I can build on your the example you used, the kids dumping all the, the everything out of their backpack. Yeah. It has to be, I mean, what you described, some level of comfort with mess and chaos. Yes. Yes. And that's true. Um, there's when everybody dumps all the stuff on the table, there's always this moment where I feel like I should have popcorn, right? I'm sitting and watching this fascinating show. I'm like, I have no idea how this is going to end. This is great. <laughs> and you sort of have to live with that, right? This this deer in the headlights moment of I don't think this is gonna work out, but let's give it a try. Right. And we just keep going through the process. Yeah. I'll be honest here. Every single time I'm blown away by gosh, this stuff actually works. Mm. Like if people feel safe and they feel heard and they feel comfortable enough to come up with solutions, like they do. It's yeah. it's just incredible. Um, so you're right. You have to be comfortable with the mess. You have to be comfortable with that uncertainty and not try to generate a solution too quickly. I, I get in trouble every time I do that. I'm like, guys, it's obvious. Like you just have to meet on Tuesdays. This makes so much sense. And then they'll fight with me, right? And then it doesn't work. Instead, at some point, someone will say, yeah, this great idea. We should meet on Tuesdays. And then they're both like, yeah, thank goodness we came up with that. (laughs) Right? And so you're right. Living with that, living with that chaos, not trying to jump in and fix it. That's definitely a skill, but it just takes a constant reminder, doesn't it? As a follow-up, could you tell us a bit more about both Mediate.com and Caseload Manager, as well as the work you do with both? Absolutely. So, Mediate.com is an umbrella company. And then we have a lot of satellite companies underneath that. So I'm the executive VP of Mediate.com. I've been there about 13, almost 14 years at this point. And I had received my master's and my doctorate in dispute resolution. And I was living down in Los Angeles with my husband. We had our first child. I mean, Strauss Institute was great. I loved going to Pepperdine. Los Angeles just was not a good fit for us, right? We'd both grown up in the country. And that's the kind of life we'd envisioned for our kids. And we were pretty desperate to get out of L.A. My husband was from Pittsburgh. 
And so it was this race, like whoever could find a grown up job first, we would move there. Okay, so he's submitting resumes everywhere. And I knew that Mediate.com was based in Eugene, which is where I grew up, which is where I wanted to work. So I started stalking Jim Malamed relentlessly. Like I wasn't even emailing his wife. It was getting probably borderline not okay. And I would show up at conferences I knew he was going to be at. And he finally emailed me and he said, if I just hire you, will you stop enough already? So it was wonderful. So we moved up to Eugene and I started working at Mediate.com. And my main job there was caseload manager. So it was really fun because I started at Pepperdine in the master's program in around 2002, 2003, right? So I was training with all of these mediators. And then I began working there. And my job was to help people get a career and get started and find contacts. So I got to work with the same group of people that I had been students with, right? And so we went through class together. And then I got to stick with this group and help them find jobs. And then my role at Mediate.com was once they were so successful that I could help them come up with more effective workflows, work on their marketing, help them to manage their cases. So I feel like I'm kind of continuing my same stalker tendencies and just following the same group of people through different points in your career. Claire, your book, Rising Above Office Conflict, provides readers with a guidebook for handling workplace frustration. Statistically, how big of a problem is this? And why is it that conflict is prevalent in our professional environment? Yeah, it's a really good question. So if we are looking at the state of, of our workplace today, unfortunately, most workplaces that you enter are pretty toxic. And so just some numbers to back that up. About 89% of workers in 2023 have said that they've experienced a state of extreme burnout. One third of workers say that they are impaired at least 40% of the time, meaning that they feel so dragged down, so burnt out, so frustrated with a conflict that they're not able to do their job. So when you think about our workforce and you take a third of that and realize that almost half the time they're not able to do their job, to me, that's letting us know that it's not a healthy environment right now. Some of the main... Causes for that are workplace stress. And when we drill down even deeper, one of the main causes of that stress is people have a problem and they don't know how to deal with it. So I looked into this quite a bit and found out that one of the big causes of mental health trauma, mental health concern, is not having a plan or a process or hope for working through something difficult in their life. We were able to put on a mental health and mediation conference last year where we brought in a bunch of people who had survived suicide attempts. And the majority of them said that there was an obstacle, there was a problem in their life that they just didn't know how to deal with. And if somebody had come alongside and helped them to deal with that problem, then they felt like it still would have been hard, but they could have arrived at a different solution. So I feel like we're seeing a lot of symptoms of that in the workplace today, right? There are problems. There's always going to be problems. The difference is a lot of our workforce right now is not trained in how to actually take effective steps at resolving that problem, right? What we do instead is we underreact or we overreact, right? We underreact by saying, it'll be fine. I don't want to rock the boat. It'll go away if we don't deal with it. It's more important to me that we have a nice relationship. I don't need to fuss about this little thing, right? Or we overreact, like, well, I'm just going to say, this is how we have to resolve it. And I'm going to throw down my power and I'm just going to jump in and create a solution. 
And then that causes burnout, right? That destroys relationships as well. And neither of those actually change the problem, right? So I feel like our poor workforce is just spinning their wheels, but they don't have the tools to actually make any change, right? So they keep trying the same thing over and over and it's not helping. And we know like that, that takes a big hit on you mentally, right? It's frustrating when you feel like you're working towards something and you're not seeing any progress. So yeah, so that's why I wanted to write the book because I feel like all of us, we have access to this amazing knowledge. But the book came about from my husband. He was overseeing a, a construction site and he was frustrated with all the workers. And as he's describing it, he was like, oh, you need to read Mediating Dangerously by Ken Cloak. You need to read The Mediation Process by Christopher Moore, right? And I'm thinking of all of these great books. And as I'm describing it, my teenager goes, ugh, TLDR. And of course, as you do with teenagers, right, you pretend like you know what they're talking about. And I just nodded and smiled. And then I Googled it later and it meant too long, didn't read. So she said, mom, you're giving dad all of these books. He's never going to sit down and read a book on conflict theory or the hierarchical culture of the workplace. You need to distill it into a guidebook, something that if he's frustrated on his lunch break, he can flip to chapter 23, come up with three steps for dealing with it. And then that afternoon he's often running and actually resolving a problem. So that's where the book came from. So the lack of skills is part of the problem. Have you seen any exasperation of the problem from like 2020, the pandemic, and as we come out of it, anything there kind of popping in, in your work? Absolutely. So what was interesting was during COVID, I definitely saw some workplace disputes. It was when people went back to the office that there was just this skyrocketing of disputes. And a lot of people said that when they had been working, it was like a frog sitting in a pot of water, right? And somebody had just been slowly turning up the heat. And it was, oh, here's one more thing that I'll accept. Oh, and once again, I'm overworked. And once again, I'm underappreciated, right? And it was just like little thing, little thing, little thing. And then they stepped away from that during COVID. And then when they jumped back into the pot of boiling water, they were like, whoa, this is too hot. This is not okay. I can't believe that I had let myself put up with this for so long. So I think it was really the perspective of being away from the office and then jumping back into it that made a lot of workers say, we really have to deal with this. One last follow-up here. Do you see any growing trends in who, how, and when disputes are handled? Are they more often by HR and ombuds? office, third-party mediators, frontline manager, supervisor, employee-led? Do we get to them in the moment, more after the fact, and not meant to be leading, or just ignore it altogether? Right. <laughs> yeah. Great question. Lots of trends going in a lot of different places. So let me try to show you a few of the different themes that I'm seeing. First off, this isn't a new trend. This is a very common trend that we've seen for a long time. When most people have an issue what they do, like, uh, let's say I have a concern with a coworker and Nolan is my HR person. And I walk into Nolan's room and I slam the door shut and I say, oh, you are not going to believe what they did this time. And, bloop, and I just vent and vent and vent and vent, right? And Nolan might give me some great advice. And I have now de-escalated and calmed down. I feel validated, but I haven't actually addressed the issue with my coworker, right? So nothing has changed. So the next day when the same thing happens, I know that to feel better, I need to go back to my HR person and have them listen and make me feel better. The problem is that this is a really vicious cycle 
where HR is saying, we are so overworked. We are trying to solve these problems, but we are inundated by stuff that's not getting better. And I think the problem is because we have set up this cycle that says, you're right. People are coming to you to solve things and they don't know how to solve things on their own. So that's not a new trend. It's just something that I see in just about every office that I work with, right? HR is incredibly well-intentioned. They are there to try to help people. But sometimes by helping people, we're actually enabling, right? And we're not doing anything that actually changes the conflict. So that's one trend that I'm seeing. As far as where disputes are getting resolved, what's interesting is with the influx of the new workforce that are incredibly emotionally aware, right? And also kind of emotionally entitled. And what I mean by that is they're saying, these are my feelings. I don't want you to gaslight me about them. These feelings are valid and we need to hold space for them in this conversation and in this workplace. And so they're very well informed. They are protective of their feelings. And I think this is causing a new problem for a lot of HR offices who are saying, this is a whole new breed of workforce. Like, how are we supposed to work with them? How are we supposed to help them? And I think the right answer there and the HR offices that are most successful are the ones that say, I am giving you space and freedom to resolve this. I am letting you design the process and you design the outcome. What I can do is create that safe space for you. Something like, here's a $10 Starbucks gift card. Why don't the two of you go out for half an hour and talk through this? Or why don't you take lunch tomorrow? Or I'll reserve the conference room in the morning and I will let you design the process and you design the outcome, right? So HR is empowering the employees, but still saying, we see you, we see that it's a problem, we want to help, but we want you to feel that investment and ownership over it. So I'm seeing a lot more of that, where HR is realizing that they're overworked, they can't solve everything. And so as soon as they hear about something, they're trying to do a little pushback and helping employees to resolve it themselves. Another trend that I'm seeing that I think is so cool is um, I'm seeing a lot of external ombuds offices so these are ombuds that aren't necessarily connected with like a university or an organization. They're an ombuddy and they're just a friend of a business that comes in and they get to know them and they establish some good relationships and then they're just on retainer. So whenever there is an issue, they come and they check in and they can resolve that specific dispute and then back out. Right. So this makes it a very confidential process where it doesn't feel like they're under the umbrella of that organization, but the ombuds is removed. So I love this. I'm really excited to see where this goes, but I have met a lot of ombuds just this year that quit their job connected with an organization. And instead they're starting their own external ombuds consulting company. Yeah. Which is cool. Is workplace conflict uh, simply an inevitable or are there things leaders can do to prevent conflict from occurring or reoccurring? What have you seen effective organizations do as preventative measures? So workplace conflict, 100% is inevitable. And I really feel like that's a good thing. I picture it like, have you ever been around those people where it felt like there was no conflict, but they also didn't bring things up, right? Things never deepened. And it sort of felt to me like those were two flat pieces of paper. But if something happened, there was nothing holding them together. As opposed to, an office that has gone through it together, right? We have been through the trenches. It has gotten nasty. We have pushed and pulled on each other. But because of that, like when I pushed, you respected me and you listened and I felt accepted. 
And when you pushed, I listened and we figured out how our strengths and our weaknesses interlock. So now you have two people that are like two puzzle pieces, right? And that is a very, very strong relationship. If there's no conflict, I think it's hard to deepen a relationship. I think you really need those misunderstandings so that I know, oh, that's your boundary. Now I know if I go farther than this, I'm stepping on your toes, right? And I need you to come right up to my boundaries as well so you can understand where my lanes are. So absolutely, conflict is inevitable. And I think it's such a healthy part of an office, right? It says that we're growing and we're pushing and we're intersecting with each other, but it doesn't have to escalate, right? That's really the problem is that people just don't know how to talk through it. So this is where the book comes in. This is where some basic principles of just teaching people how to articulate in a little healthier way. So most of my trainings just involve hey, you've been talking up here at a position level, right? Kind of a Willy Wonka, Veruca de Salt. It's like, but daddy, all I want to know, Balumpa, no. Right, that's how most of our conversations are, right? Where it's just, this is my position and, and you better give it to me. You better give me that raise or you better have that project done by Monday at nine, which is so unhealthy, right? So instead, I just train people, pause, take a breath, drop down a level and let's communicate from interests. Let's say, hey, we have that huge client meeting next Monday at nine. I think it would really be fantastic if you could have that project to me by eight so I could have time to review it. So I look like I know what I'm talking about, right? That's an interest level. And absolutely now I'm on board and I'm invested in your interests. Conflicts are inevitable, but this prevents the escalation of conflicts. Beautiful advice and, and coaching. And we're going to get in your book and just one more question, which is full of some great counsel have you ever been part of a mediation that failed? What did you learn from that experience that translates into some of the stuff we're going to get into in just a moment? Now, I'm going to give you a second just to think about that because typically we don't ask that question around failure until later on in the episode. So we've warmed you up and, and now it made it very, very, very easy to answer that. But I knew you could take this one early on, Claire. So have you ever had a mediation failure? Absolutely. <laughs> there are a couple times that didn't really fail. So let me start with the easy ones. As an example, this Tuesday meeting was a very realistic mediation where I was getting frustrated. I was meeting with a whole department and it had just been going on all day long. I was getting tired and the answer is so obvious. Like we all just needed to meet on Tuesdays. That's when the departments were together, easy share information. So I was like, look, it just seems like you all should meet on Tuesdays. Does that work? How about I'll just write that into the agreement and then we're done. Right. It fizzled within a week. Because there was no buy-in. They were frustrated with me. They were still mad at everybody else. There had been no ownership of it. All right, so then I had to come back for another whole day so that we could arrive at them saying, let's meet on Tuesdays. It was a big reminder for me about how important it is for the mediator to just leave herself on the shelf, right? As much as I want to put my advice and my ideas in, it's not my outcome. So, right, just as a reminder, you've got to be quiet. For her as one that's actually failed, though, I think the the first time that's happened so far, the only time was this year. And it was, it was a fascinating, eye-opening experience. I'd sort of gotten into this rhythm, right? People call me, great, I jump in, I start mediating. And I had let go of some of those basic skills that we all learn when we take our initial training. So I hadn't done my due diligence, right? I hadn't met with people beforehand. I hadn't asked leadership what had happened before I had gotten there. So I meet with all of these people right? We spend a half an hour with each one of them. So there are about 10 people at this point that wow. I had met with. Wow. And 
had a really great understanding of the conflict. We developed this three-day agenda that we were going to go through together. And, and we all knew like who had been involved in this, what the main issue was. We were talking through it. And then out of nowhere, I get this email blast that says, we feel like by including our names on the agenda, you have betrayed our trust and our confidentiality. Wow. And we are recommending to the, to the organization that they never work with you again. I was like, like, I don't understand. This was a meeting with all of us in person. Like we all knew who was going to be there. We knew who was involved in the conflict. And so I was really racking my brain. So I was thinking, well, I could just apologize, but I don't really know what I'm apologizing for. So that feels kind of hollow. So I asked a few times to meet. And then the, the person who had sent the email ended up blocking me so that I couldn't even email her again. And I reached out to the manager. I said, look, clearly I have done something wrong. I would love to understand, apologize if I have to, but I just want to understand what happened here. And he said, yeah, she is really mad at you. He said, I think we'd better just let that die down. Okay. So six months go by, right? And it's, it's frustrating and it's just kind of sitting in my stomach. Finally, the manager reaches back out to me and he said, okay, I think I figured this out. In the background, somebody was filing a harassment suit against her. She was so afraid that we were going to have a mediation where there was going to be this open flow of communication and that information would have come out in the mediation. So she was doing everything she could to cancel it. And so I don't know. I don't know if there's any way that I could have progressed differently. I think she would have found something that I did wrong, right? No matter what I had tried, I think she would have found some way to sabotage the mediation. So that, that was difficult, but it was a really good eye-opening experience to remind myself, hey, Claire, no matter how good you think you are or how strong of a connection you think you have with the employees, you still have to ask them those background questions. Like, what's going on? Do you still actually want to mediate? What is your end result here? Yeah. So, right, constant learning. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Want to get into your book now. Um, give listeners just a taste. Okay. I'm using that word intentionally because I got a follow-up question after. So, oh, but um, <laughs> you describe different personalities and you give them names like inappropriate Ivan and chatty Kathy, probably people we can relate to. Right. And in total, you describe 20 possible coworkers uh, that'll certainly resonate with listeners. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit from the book some about some common personalities and both the unique strategies that you take for dealing with different individuals and maybe Absolutely. just some, some universal general approaches too. Sure, sure. So actually writing the book was fascinating because I would leave these, these high conflict, very toxic workplace mediations and you don't have an office to go back to, right? So it was great for me just to be able to journal about this, like what I had seen and what were some common trends, some common behaviors that I was seeing. So you're right, there's the honey badger, the Hulk, busier than thou, micromanager. Busier than thou, that was really describing myself. It was hard writing these. Like there were so many things where I was like, oh, I really, I relate to that one. <laughs> I do that one, don't I? And it was actually a great experience being able to write this. Editing was hard, I'll be honest. I hated having to go back and edit everything that I wrote, but whatever, it was good. So the majority of the book is just describing these behaviors and then giving people just a quick set of tips so that they can turn to that section and say, hey, here's why they're behaving this way. 
like a passive aggressive. They're having a flight response. They're considered a soft negotiator. Here's what that means. Here's three characteristics so you can identify if it's passive aggressive behavior. And here's how we can deal with that behavior. So let me give you an example. Let's say that you have a Hulk in the office and you have a people pleaser, okay? So you have someone who is a very over, probably over reacting type of a personality and a people pleaser that says, well, I don't need to bring it up, right? Don't want to rock the boat. And let's say that these two are trying to figure out a, gosh, I just ran into this one a few weeks ago. It was a, an office where there was a Hulk and there was a people pleaser and they had to figure out the hiring process within the next few weeks. And it became so heated, right? The Hulk was getting so frustrated that the people pleaser ended up getting a TRO, right? A temporary restraining order on her manager. So from then on, they could only communicate via email because she would not be in the same space with her. It was that heated. So what that usually looks like is, and I call this the thunder turtle syndrome. So you have the Hulk who's like, I just need to get this message across, right? I just need to connect with you. I just need you to understand. And the louder that they get, what does the turtle do, right? Turtle's like, danger, Will Robinson, right? And they just continue to withdraw and hide within their shell. And as they withdraw, what does this person do? They're like, oh, I need to be louder to get through, right? And so the louder they get, the more this one withdraws. And it creates that thunder turtle syndrome. But what's What I love about both of these personalities is that the trick for working with them, the trick for breaking the cycle is just listening, right? Because the second a thunderer feels heard, they don't have to yell anymore, right? Then they can notch it down a little bit and just have a peaceful conversation. And the second the turtle feels safe and feels heard and feels validated, then they can come out of their shell and they can have a conversation, Right. So it's just, it's such basic stuff that I feel like we have forgotten, but it's just how to listen to each other and how to talk in a way where people can hear you. Love it. And we're going to leave it there because we're going to encourage folks to pick up the book and study some of the other personality types and, and strategies for managing those. Hey everyone, Nolan here. I have to jump in, in today's podcast for part A of the show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Negotiate X podcast if you haven't already. And also join us next week for part B of this awesome interview. Hey, thanks for checking out this video on Negotiate X TV. If you found any value at all, please hit the subscribe button. Hit the notification icon if you want to be notified of future videos. And then we also have a couple videos over here that you might be interested in checking out. If you and your small business, your team are looking to get negotiations or leadership training, then you can head over to NegotiateX.com and learn more about the coaching services we offer. Thanks. And I'll see you over the next video. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.